Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 107, 107 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. This episode will be a little different, although actually not at all, but I'm recording this on August 29th and August 28th is a very difficult day for me. And I had thought of recording the podcast yesterday, but I was in a mindset where I didn't really want to think about anything. If you've listened to my whole story and listened to all the podcast episodes, then you know that August 28th was sort of the beginning of the several months leading up to Molly's death that I feel really solidified her death. And so as August marches along, which has never been a great experience for me anyway, August 28th just arrives and arrives and arrives, gets closer and closer. So it's August 29th and I've done my, please Molly, come home. Molly, I miss you. Molly, I'm sorry. 8,000 times in my head. (laughs) It's all just part of it. And I'm much better now at letting it flow through me and just living it and then taking a breath and moving along than I was even last year. So I I feel okay about it. I feel, you know, I can't undo any of it. All I can do is do it better next time. So we have a big dumpster in our yard. We're having our kitchen remodeled. I've talked about that too, I think. And so it was my idea, let's clean out the barn in the garage so that there's, you know, stuff for materials and a clean workspace for workers and all of the things that can make a home construction job easier. But it's also quite cathartic and with everything that you pick up is attached to memory. So I'm not going to spend this episode talking about the dumpster. Kenny and I have done the dumpster before. This is our third dumpster, I believe. This past weekend, I went and saw Bruce Springsteen. August 29th email, today's email, talks all about the Bruce Springsteen concert and how amazing it was. But like everything in my life, post-Molly, post-abuse, post-job loss, where I have all these beginnings and endings, befores and afters, the experience was, was different for me. And it was different in a lot of ways. And so I'll talk about how the obvious ways it's different when you go to a, a concert at age 60 versus age 22, right? So that's about how old I was when I first saw Springsteen. I was 21, I think. It was 1984. And his Born in the USA album was going nuts. And that's when Bruce really became mainstream rock and roll popular was 1984. I was in college then. I was dating David. And all of my early Springsteen memories are around the Vanna family. David, Franny, Karen, Richard. Well, Richard's a McIntyre, but, you know, it was just Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. You know, let's get our Bruce juice flowing. You know, just going to see Bruce. And in my younger life, in my 20s, before I moved back home to Concord, I saw Bruce several times. And in my mind, I always think that that's when I saw him the most. But I've actually seen him the most since the summer of 1999. So the last 24 years, it's a long time. Two or three months ago, I saw that Bruce was coming to Foxborough. And so I bought tickets and I bought four tickets and I invited Jen and Dave Hunger. Neither of them has seen Bruce before. They're younger than us, but still in our generation. And so I thought it would be fun to bring them. And we had a wonderful time. So as the concert drew closer, Jen thinking ahead, we should get a hotel room. Then we don't have to drive home in the middle of the night. And But of course, we have a hotel room. I've got to bring Jack. So who do I bring to watch Jack? So Gracie came. So we load up the car. We have all things for Jack, toys and food and all these different things. And Gracie's coming. 
and Kenny and I. And so we arrive at the hotel at about 4.30, concerts at 7.30. Dave and Jen are there already and they've gone for lunch and they've had drinks and they're sort of already in sort of the partying mode. Well, I don't know that I've ever gone to a concert sober, quite honestly. I'd have to really think back to my early years of sobriety when I was in AA. I think I went to several like Indigo Girls concerts and, and those types of concerts with Polly and Kristen, both of whom were practicing sober people at the time. So it wasn't a big deal. And Kenny and I had sort of agreed not to drink. But when we got there and Jen and Dave were having fun, you know, his resolve slips. I had a hard time with it. I have to be honest. I was angry, angry that he decided he wanted to drink. And it's not like I'm his mother, but I knew that I'm now the only one not drinking. And that's isolating because, you know, with alcohol and with people drinking alcohol together comes a level of behavior that excludes somebody that's not drinking. We take the shuttle to the concert venue to Gillette and we got club seats and they're comfortable. And I could have sat anywhere, quite honestly. I never even utilized the club seat. I never got food. I wasn't drinking, so I didn't need to go to the bar and I didn't buy any merch. (laughs) But we got there and we sat right down. We had amazing seats right at the bottom, right in the front of the club section. And so it was about 25 minutes before concert starting time. So they all disappeared to go get drinks, which is fine. I just wanted to sort of be in the venue. And it was beautiful, a summer night just as a Bruce Springsteen concert in a stadium should be. It should be warm and sunny and beautiful. And it was. And so I sat and I took some pictures and some video clips and posted on Facebook and sort of took it all in. So the thing about concert performers in their 60s and 70s is that they start on time. (laughs) Oftentimes you'll go to a concert and it says starting time 7.30 and 8.30 rolls around and the concert still hasn't started yet. Not so with Bruce. And so all of a sudden, People start coming up on stage and on the big jumbotrons, you can see them band member by band member. So I'm looking around and I'm by myself and I'm bummed because this is a part of the concert that, you know, no matter where Kenny and I are, we both love Bruce. And so this is something I would have loved to share with somebody, but that wasn't going to happen. And so I invested a lot of energy in just being okay with it in the moment. Here comes Nick Clemens. So Clarence Clemens was forever the big man, Bruce's saxophone player, big giant black guy. He reminds me a lot of Dizzy Gillespie, a similar look. You know, Dizzy was a trumpet player, so not the same instrument, but just a black horn player. Oh, so amazing. One of my favorite realms of music. So he walks up. So I realized that next is going to be little Stevie and then Bruce. So sure enough, here comes Stephen Van Zandt, little Stevie. And he always wears funky hats and he's always dressed really just in a weird way. And he didn't disappoint. And then here was Bruce. And so of course, in all my videos, you can hear my off, my off key singing and my screaming and yelling. I was so excited. And so began the concert and he played for three hours. He never stopped. That's his reputation anyway, but he's, he's 73, about to turn 74. He turned 74 in September. That's not young. <laughs> and he was now, I, I will say having seen him in concert for 30 years or so, he doesn't move with the same amount of agility as he did when I saw him at Fenway Park and he hoisted himself upside down on the microphone stand. Those days might be gone, but he, he never stopped for over three hours. He played from 7.40 until about 10.40. He never stopped. 28 songs, one song into the next, into the next. A couple of times he told a couple of stories, which I love because I love his stories. And sometimes he would have two or three fast songs and then a slow song. And I think he'd recover a little bit from a slow song, but He never stopped. He walked in through the audience in those front row seats. He just entertained. By far, one of the best Springsteen concerts I've seen. I sang along to every song. I knew every word. And when I didn't, I knew enough of them that I could still actively 
<laughs> participate. I felt bad a little bit because I wanted to spend the whole concert standing up. I never would have sat down except a lot of people behind me weren't standing up. On songs that weren't quite so important to me, I would sit down. But when when a certain song would come on, I would stand up and go nuts. So a couple of songs are, are special to me. Some of my favorite Springsteen songs are what would be considered B-side songs. This is when I knew I was a Springsteen fan way back when. In 1984, I bought the album Born in the USA. And so I listened to it front, back, front, back, front, back, over and over and over and over. So I knew every song on it. Not realizing that for most people who don't buy the album, which is a lot of people who listened to the radio back then, they wouldn't know any of the other songs. They would only know the ones they heard in the radio. And so I got to know a lot of the songs. So then they would be on the radio and somebody would say, oh my God, there's a brand new Bruce Springsteen song. And I think a new song, and it wasn't new. It was just new to the radio. And so a lot of the songs that he played in the concert were quote unquote B-side songs, but some of musicians' best music are the B-side songs, not the ones that made it to the number one. As I listened to every song, as will happen with me, as what happened to me when I was watching Derek perform in Funny Girl on Broadway. Everything he did reminded me of a memory that was attached to him. And every song that came on brought me back to a Bruce memory, especially some of these less known songs. The first time I took Kenny to see Bruce was a week after we had lost baby Gordy. And that was a story in and of itself because the day that we were scheduled to deliver, I had Springsteen concerts for us. And we had laughed about how I'd be big and pregnant and we'd go and see it and all this. And then we went through that process of losing baby Gordy. And so I had to deliver him on the day of the concert. And I remember going to Manchester, New Hampshire to a, like a Ticketmaster office. Nothing was online then. You had to go and buy the tickets. I go there with my tickets and I explain, and I'm still carrying my no longer alive baby <laughs> and saying that I have to deliver this baby and I'm going to have to miss the concert. And the gentleman was so kind to me and he just swapped tickets for me. He had very similar tickets to the same show that was like a week later. On a Friday night in August, I went and delivered baby Gordy. And maybe five or six nights later, Kenny and I went and saw Bruce. And that concert opened with a song called Candy's Room. And I believe that this was the first Bruce concert I had been to since ending my relationship with David and moving back to New Hampshire. I don't believe I went to any Springsteen concerts really in all of the 90s. Kenny and I go. And I'm thinking, what will he open with? And so he opened with a song called Candy's Room. And it's now one of my favorite songs. And I think it's because, I think it's because it connects to that concert. The first time Kenny ever saw Bruce. And he was kind of a Springsteen fan, but not a major Springsteen fan. But, but he likes that kind of music. And so if you like that kind of music and then you watch him perform, you'll pretty much be hooked and really have a new level of love for Springsteen. So we had a wonderful time at that concert. He opened with Candy's Room, which isn't a super well-known song, but I loved it. We enjoyed the concert. And so began a series of concerts again and again and again that Kenny and I went to. So I believe we're up to about 12 concerts. <laughs> so Kenny has seen Springsteen a whole bunch of times because every time he plays, I try to get tickets. And I'm always it's always a big, exciting thing when I do. So as I listened to Bruce play and pondered my relationship with this musician, it was very reaffirming for me, my ideas around the Molly B Foundation and really encouraging children who have suffered a traumatic event and the ability for the arts to play a helpful role in both healing from the trauma and learning how to incorporate your traumatized self into, into a quote unquote normal life, to learn how to carry the trauma with you and manage it. And you listen to any story that Springsteen tells when he's giving a concert and you hear it in his stories. So I'm watching the concert. And of course, anytime there's a Born to Run or 
Born in the USA, Dancing in the Dark, Glory Days, any of those songs, Born in the USA and Prior, bring me back to my Vonnet years because those were the songs that were popular back then and a lot more of those songs were played. Bruce has a couple of albums not so well known. One's called The River and one's called Nebraska. Both of them are very, very slow albums. They're not super hardcore rock and roll. They're a bit slower. The songs are ballads. They sound, many of them sound incredibly sad and they tell hard stories. And this is a lot of what Bruce's music does anyway. Even some of his hardest rock songs tell really painful stories or relay experiences of growth and that sort of thing. I had so many memories of seeing Bruce at Gillette and seeing Bruce at the Boston Garden, which is now the TD Garden, of seeing Bruce in Worcester at the Worcester Centrum. I don't think it's called that anymore, but it's an indoor arena in Worcester of seeing Bruce in New Jersey. I drove to New Jersey with David's brother, Franny. We stayed in Asbury Park. We actually had the most Bruce-centric 48 hours ever. We used my my roommate Alyssa's silver car, Priscilla, she named it. And we drove to New Jersey. And that was a concert where we had no tickets. And we walked up to the box office and got fourth row seats because they had some left. $17.50 a ticket. Oh, what? Oh my gosh. The second night we were there, we did the same thing and it didn't work. And so we had to just buy them from scalpers and we paid a hundred bucks and sat in the nosebleed seats, but Bruce is Bruce. So those memories really, really came flooding back to me. My memories of before moving back to Concord of running for Nike and being at BU and dating David and then the breakup with David and the back and forth and in the Sev years. And when I was teaching in Woburn and beginning to spend a lot of time with Sev, the Tunnel of Love tour came out. And this was such a different time for Bruce. He was going through a divorce and falling in love with who had ended up being his forever love, Patty. And, you know, it was just, the songs were all different and the whole thing just felt tumultuous. And so all those memories would come back as I'm listening to the songs. And then I'm, I'm really participating in the concert by myself. Kenny was having fun, but he'd had drinks. And so he's not quite the same. And it was just difficult. And I just wanted to listen to every word and dance along. What also happened was all of the different times that I'd seen him with Kenny and where I was in my life at that time. And so we had a couple of shows, Springsteen shows where before babies, and then we had a handful of Springsteen shows where my mom would come and spend the night or come and stay. And we would go and see the concert and come back. Kenny and I have seen him also in a variety of places. We've seen him at Gillette. We've seen him at The Garden. We've seen him at Fenway Park. We've seen him at Great Woods, which is not called Great Woods anymore. It's an outdoor theater in Mansfield, Mass. But we've seen him several times through several different albums, Magic, The Rising. And sometimes we've gone to more than one show in the time that we've seen him. So as I'm listening to the music and watching him perform, all of those things are coming through my head as well. And then I'm pondering Bruce himself because he's he's a 74-year-old singer. And the one thing I really love about Bruce, and this is my personal thing, not so much of him as a musician and his songs, is that he's very authentic and he never stopped being who he was. He had a brief foray in the LA life and he married a beautiful model and was living a life I think he thought he was supposed to live. And it wasn't long lasting. He was a couple of years and he was back in New Jersey. And the woman he married is from New Jersey. They bought property in New Jersey where he recorded his albums and lived and raised his kids. And his kids are as normal as they could be having Bruce Springsteen as a dad and Patty Scalfa as a mom. I know one of his sons is a Newark firefighter. Like, you know, they're just 
really, really regular citizens. And I know that he was very, very insistent that they be kept apart from the ugliness of fame and fortune and, and what can go wrong when you become famous. Bruce has also always been a champion of the underdog. He always facilitates donations and donates himself to food banks and food pantries and domestic violence crisis centers. And, you know, he, he finds things to support and encourages his fans to do the same. He has very openly shared his struggles with depression and pretty chronic depression. He wrote an incredible memoir. I'm not sure if he wrote it or if he ghostwrote it. I don't know. Now that, I've, now that I'm into the memoir business, I'll have to research this a little more. But in that book, he is utterly, utterly honest about his severe depression and his inability to function sometimes and his ideations of suicide and, and hurting so much that he just didn't think he could do it and how phenomenal Patty has been for him. And he shares all this. And, and I remember at the time of the book release, you know, there are always going to be people who criticize that or belittle it or make it a negative thing. And I just feel that the more we share our struggles, the more authentic our triumphs are, right? If we only talk about the triumphs, then we, we appear as this unattainable picture of perfection when that isn't true at all. And so I'm watching Bruce perform and I'm trying to really look for signs that tell me he's 74. And quite honestly, the main thing was he had this big set of stairs going up from the main stage down to a secondary stage. And then these ramps that went down to where the audience was. When he went up and down the stairs, I could tell that he was old. So if you watch people that are getting older, your hips and your knees become less mobile and less bouncy. And so those two joints work together. If you have really weak hips or weak knees, they affect each other. Same with mobility. So he would go up and down the stairs and he had a little hitch and giddy up. And I'm like, ah, there's 74-year-old Bruce. So he told a couple of stories and oftentimes his stories would be stories of his youth. And when he was young and really playing to much younger crowds, that made sense, right? But he isn't young now. And if you go on my Facebook page and look at any of my sweeping video clips, you'll see that the people sitting around me are not young. There were some young people there for sure. But for the most part, I remember thinking, wow, all these old people like Bruce. And then I realized, okay, well, Bruce is an old person and I'm an old person. So this all makes sense. But he talked about a friend of his that had died. And I don't remember the specifics of who this was. It wasn't anyone in his band per se, but it was somebody in the industry and, and how his death just devastated him. And he wrote a song for him. And he goes, I wrote the song after he died. And it was this beautiful ballad about standing alone, you know, as you start to lose people and they, they disappear from you, how you stand alone, but you realize that you're much closer, not only to the end, but to whatever the beginning is of the next phase. This very, very soulful song. It was beautiful. And then when he is in his several encore phase of his concerts, he introduces everyone on the stage, the E Street Band. And for the most part, the original E Street Band is intact. If somebody isn't in it, it's because they've died. The first person to die was his organist and accordion player. He played a bunch of instruments and his name was Danny Federici. And Danny died in 2008 of melanoma, which is a really aggressive form of cancer that starts as a skin cancer on your skin, can really quickly take over your body. And when Kenny and I went in 2007 to the Rising concerts, we saw it, Danny played and Bruce gave him this big goodbye because he was leaving the tour at that time to go for medical treatment and we couldn't wait to have him back. And he never came back. I think he performed a handful of songs in one concert in Indianapolis and then he passed away. And that was like, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it's the beginning of the end. Like we've stepped into the age where people start to die. And even though it's sad, and even though 55 is young, it's not as young as 13. You know, it's not a child dying or a young adult. 
he didn't talk about Danny in this tour, but he did a whole, as he was introducing the E Street Band and all the members that have been there for, for a long time, his saxophone player is who I said before, Nick Clements, who is this amazing saxophone player, and he's the son of Clarence. And I remember as Clarence's health started to fail, Nick would come, Clarence Nicholas Jr., and support his dad, play some of the songs. His dad would play a song, then go backstage and rest, and then Clarence Jr., Nick would play. It was a sort of a transition into the E Street Band, and now he's... He's the big man now. You know, I think of him as a young child and he's, you know, he's 55. <laughs> he's five years younger than me. But I was so cued into it that when I was a first a Springsteen fan, Nick was a teenager. So in my mind, he's still young like that. And so he talked about Clarence and there's a song called 10th Avenue Freeze Out. And there's a line in the song that talks about changes made up town and the big man joined the band and everyone goes nuts. And in the song, there's a huge saxophone break right there. And so Nick played it and they showed this whole slideshow of pictures of Clarence, young Clarence, medium Clarence, old Clarence. Clarence died. He was 69, I believe. And he died, had a stroke and then died, you know, sort of from the ramifications of the stroke. But he had been suffering health-wise for a long time. So other than that, the East Street Band really remains intact. It was obvious to me that Bruce, as a human being, is in a different phase of his life where he realizes now that the years behind him stretch much further into the past than the years ahead of him stretch into the future. And at 74, he could go at any time and it wouldn't necessarily be considered young. You know, lots and lots of people die in their 70s. His sharing and his soulfulness and his gratitude around the fact that he gets to do this is ever more present in his performance. And this resonated with me. I spoke last week in last week's episode, I talked about change and how difficult it is for me and how the season changes are hard for me and how the month of August is hard for me. And I believe that I've seen Bruce in concert in the month of August several times. And so it was like a lotion to me. It was like a soothing salve. It was like aloe on a sunburn. Being in that crowded stadium, staring at Bruce for three hours, singing along, feeling the breeze, looking at the stars, you know, enjoying the summer sky. It was, it was really just exactly what I needed. So I will point out here that in the years right after Molly died, there were two or three times that Bruce toured and Kenny would say, let's get tickets. And I, no way, nope, 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 no desire to go to Bruce. That's how, how damaged I was. And when I finally did go, I went with a couple of friends of mine. So Deb Stanley and her husband, Tom, and we went and saw Bruce at Gillette as well. And I enjoyed it, but I was anxious most of the time. And I do remember that there was a lot of songs I didn't know. And I wasn't in a place where I could just enjoy Bruce. It was really hard. That was a really hard concert. Thank God it was Deb and Tom because they were wonderful. And we could, we could sort of be there for each other. That was August 26th, the concert. August 27th, I come home. My beautiful sister, Eleanor, came and spent the day. And I can talk to her about these kinds of things as well. You know, she lost her dad at age 13. And even though he was elderly and she knew that he would die, you're never ready for it when it happens. And so we just talked a lot about life and the changes and what an upheaval change can feel like and change can bring. Bruce also talked about how important music was to him. What did he do when his friend died? He wrote a song. And this particular share, share of his in the concert really got me to thinking about Molly and how if our souls know on some level that the end is near, the number of stories of children telling their parents, I'm not going to live a long time, mommy, or I'm going to die young, daddy. These stories are not few and far between. They happen a lot. And so many of the conversations I had with Molly in the weeks and months leading up to her death 
give me chills now to think back on them because they just all indicated change at a soul level for her and a level of questioning and understanding and, and thought that didn't make sense for a 13-year-old girl. But I know that for Molly, so much of her salve, things that made her feel good were theater, were, were going and being with her drama friends and her theater friends, of getting up on stage and being someone else, of memorizing the lines and learning the songs and performing with everybody and celebrating when it was done and having this little microcosm, this little community within your life that was a place you could go and feel safe. She loved it. It was incredibly important to her. The dance piece was important to her as well. It was the same thing. She had her school friends and her theater friends and her dance friends. And these were three communities in which she felt safe. And listening to Bruce talk about what's behind the songs he writes. As I've said before, all of his songs tell stories, either his own or social stories or historical stories. And they all have angst in them and they all have struggle and then triumph from struggle or struggle and sadness from struggle. And when you listen and really listen to the lyric, they paint a picture for you. And the arts for Bruce saved him. And he'll say that, you know, he got a guitar. In his own words, his dad used to say, you and that goddamn guitar. <laughs> but that goddamn guitar was what brought Bruce life. And he joined a little band with his friends and he became Bruce Springsteen, right? So I look at the Molly B Foundation, which is like big in my head right now because I have to stay focused on it. This is a time of year, the end of August. I know by the time you're listening, hopefully I won't feel this way, but today on August 29th, I'm consumed with the fact that Molly loved school, the fact that she should be setting up her dorm room for her junior year, the fact that Gracie should be living in the town Molly's at college in, and that they should still be connected. I'm looking at the posts on social media of parents who say, oh my God, how do they turn 20 already? They don't talk to me anymore. Well, okay. you know, And I'm like, I'd love my child to be 20. Like These things never really dissipate for me. And I realized that the way that I'm now finding solace in these, of course, is through CrossFit, participating in coaching. That's my art. That's my performance. That's my music, right? I can move my body in, in ways that you know make me feel better. But I realized how important all of that is really to mankind and humanity in general, humankind, people kind, that music is a very natural piece of our reality and nature and movement and all of the elements of nature, water and, and air and fire and all the things that meet our most basic levels of need emotionally and spiritually and physically and mentally. All of these needs can be addressed through methods of the performing arts, whether it's creating a sculpture and entering in an art show or singing a song on a stage or acting in a play or painting a picture or writing a poem or writing a book. All of these things made me ponder in my own life people that I know, specifically people related, you know, related to the loss of Molly. And I look at some of her closest friends and how hugely involved they remain in their performing arts. Megan is still actively, actively dancing. And Keisha and Derek are both active in theater and the performing arts. Casey has just taken her talents and she's worked for and performed in and performed for amazing theater companies and TV companies. And she's in London now. Like talk about just taking advantage of it. Do I think this is because of Molly? No, that's not my point at all. But I look at the people that Molly felt the most comfortable with and they live their lives through, their, through the arts. They live their lives through their expression. Which brings me back to my trip with Gracie a couple of weeks ago to Florida for her audition and how she really tanked on the audition. And it really affected her. She's had a few really hard weeks of self-exploration and self-question. 
again and again has said, the best part about that day was I got to dance. I haven't danced in a long time. And so for 45 minutes, I was able to dance. And it really drove home to me that part of the reason I think Gracie's had a tough year is that she's not dancing. She isn't doing anything in the performing arts. She's been working and she's been working out. But the piece of her life that I truly think provided a lot of solace in the wake of Molly's death, provided a lot of solace as a child when she didn't feel accepted or popular was the dance and, for, and a little bit the theater. You know, those things aren't in her life right now. For now, I think that will change. So that was my weekend. And now I've made it beyond August 28th and my day of doom in terms of poor decision-making and starting a ball rolling down a hill that would quickly get out of control and unable for me to stop. And I can hopefully head from August into September. And when you listen to this, feel a lot better than I feel right now. So anyway, I would love to know, I keep asking. So I'm going to keep asking until I hear more and more answers. Who do you love? Who is your musical love? If you could go to a concert tonight, who would you go see? Feel free to answer this like on my Instagram page, message me on Facebook or send me a text message if we hang out. You can always email right off of the website. I would love to know who is your go-to band if you have one. Who's music that you could put on and play even when you can't stand music and be okay. And I will say, I was so broken after Molly that it was impossibly difficult to listen to Bruce because it made me feel too much because I relate to so many of his songs. I'm going to finish this episode and I'm going to go put more dump in the dumpster. I hope that the end of your August into September was good. I hope that you're enjoying your September now. The weather here in New England can be beautiful this time of year. So I hope wherever you are, the weather is lovely. By the time you hear this, actually, when you hear this, I'll be in Florida again at Disney just for a vacation before the kitchen renovation begins. Yeah, welcome back to school if you're a teacher. As the fall comes, be good to yourself. Go buy some mums or pick some apples or take a walk in the colorful woods. Be good to someone else. Gift the apples you picked to somebody else. Invite someone to take your walk with you. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.